Hello, Marvelites. Welcome to a very special bonus episode of This Week in Marvel. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And so we had some of my favorite people in the uh, offices of Marvel headquarters recently talk about the big books that they have coming up this spring, this summer. And, you know, some of these, we've been holding on to these interviews like like precious little talky babies. And now we want to give them to you, dear listeners. A lot of this stuff that we talk about here, it tees up things that have already been published. But evil producer Brandon and I were thinking that if you're not reading these dang books, well, heck, hearing from the writers will surely help you get on board. First up is Mr. Jason Aaron, and we focus a lot on the death of the mighty Thor. Spoilers, it it, it happened, but a lot more happens after that. Uh, let's go into Jason's interview. I'm glad I could be here today. Great. Uh, we want to talk about the death of the mighty Thor. Right. You've been building, I mean, essentially kind of building to the story for... What is it, four years? Well, I've been on Thor for six years. Okay. Is that right? Five, six years? Yeah, let's say um, yeah. So it's kind of, it, in some sense, it's been building that entire time. Yeah. This is the next big part of that Thor story that started in Thor, God of Thunder, number one. Uh, in terms of Jane, yeah, it's been building for like three years, it's I think. Three right? years, okay, yeah. yeah. I, I remember being in the retreat, the editorial retreat, and the announcement for... Jane, right. for that Thor story, happened while we were at a retreat. And now, years later, it's this has been one of the runs that people just adore. Jane has been such a great Thor for the fans. Yeah, that, that was weird that day when the announcement broke. It's, you know, it's hard to talk about a story that hadn't even started coming out yet. You yeah. know, like it was still months away at that point. And we couldn't even talk about who Thor was going to be. It was still a... A mystery who this who this woman was who was going to pick up the hammer you, you know we knew that whole time that it was going to be jane we knew we were telling a very specific story with her um you know it took us a few months to kind of reveal that then you found out kind of why she was worthy and what she was struggling with and that was that she was dealing with cancer in her human life and and being thor was basically killing her a little bit more every time she picked up the hammer because that transformation would neutralize the effects of her chemotherapy. So we, we've watched her struggle with that for three years now. Um, and it was kind of always building towards this. I mean, I always said, you know, if we're going to do that story, we can't just magic it away at some point. We're not going to magic away her cancer. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of always been building towards this moment. And there's not a lot of mystery there in terms of, you know, the story is called The Death of the Mighty Thor. Yeah. What, some of the stuff that I've loved about this run have been Jane's relationships or Thor's relationships with the various Asgardians and support characters. You know, you've got Agent Ra Solomon, who I, right. I, their friendship has been so cool to watch, or Volsag in particular. Like that camaraderie, friendship, you know, working together to better Asgard has always been cool. How were those relationships established in your mind? Did they change over time? As you were writing the book, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that developed over time. Um, you know, I mean, that's that's the cool thing about writing Thor, right? Is you got a very specific group of su- supporting characters, very specific setting that's different from every other character in the Marvel universe. You know, Thor can come hang out in New York City, but Thor also walks a beat that Spider-Man and and Doctor Strange and Captain America and none of these other characters walk. You've got all these 
10 different magical realms to explore. Um, and, you know, we've had a lot of fun sending uh, Jane and all these other supporting characters across those different realms because we've got war brewing in all those realms. Um, so, yeah, it's been fun to, to, to explore those, uh, all those supporting characters. You know, Volstagg's story went in a very unexpected way and that he became the war Thor for a little while, which showed, you know, it's not easy to be a Thor. Didn't work out great for him. Um, you know, he got laid low at the hands of the Mangog, which is the other major threat that, that Jane faces right now. It's not just the cancer that's killing her mortal self. It's the Mangog who's wiping out all of Asgard. We've talked a little bit on the show about the Mangog because the Mangog, awesome, great design, Absolutely, it's yeah. bonkers. He's and called the Mangog. He's called the Mangog, but he's always he's been a character that's shown up, has been a threat over and over again, right. and gets defeated. But there's something about he he will always return. He always comes back, and the enormity of what he's done. I mean, there's the scene in one of the recent issues where he pops. Heimdall's eyes and it was just like well one Jason and you and Russell and Matt and everybody you're sadistic you're awful <laughs> disgusting and I love it I love reading it but when you were thinking of the villains for this run was Mangog on your list yeah he was on my list literally from the moment I took over the book um you know when I first got the the gig on Thor I, I sat down and started reading from his first appearance and read through all those uh the Lee Kirby issues which I'd never read before I'd read a lot of the other Lee Kirby runs on, mm-hmm. you know, big Marvel books, but I'd never read those for whatever reason. So I discovered Mangog in the midst of that uh, and, and pretty quickly bought like a, you know, a statue of Mangog that's literally been sitting on my desk for six years staring at me saying, when are you going to get to my story? And there, if you look, if you go back and look over the course of my run, there are teases here and there over the course of six years pointing towards Mangog. So we were always building towards that story. And you're right, he's a character who's he's popped up a few times over the years. He shows up, he beats up all the gods, he terrifies Odin, and then usually he gets beat and he goes away. But he always manages to come back. So uh, the idea of him coming back as sort of this judgment and punishment of the gods really fits into the themes of the book that stretch back to, you know, again, to Thor, God of Thunder, number one. Yeah. With Jane falling to to her sickness, to the weight of what she's chosen to do, do you see that she has any regrets before she goes out? Does she have anything that she needs to accomplish? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, she's not ready to go. Um, she's not ready for her time to be up. She wants to be able to win all these battles, the battles as Jane Foster and the battles of Thor. Um, you know, you'll have to read to see how that works out for her. Certainly this is a story... You know, the, Jane's arc has always been building towards, but also just the overall story of Thor and of Asgard and of Thor Odin's son and of Odin. All this stuff has been building towards this, you know, titanic battle. So, yeah. Does, uh, with her supporting characters, how do they react to losing not just Thor, but losing... Uh, a piece of their hearts because that's what she's become over the last couple of years. Sure. You know, I'll be a little bit vague, but I'll just say it's it's all pretty devastating in a lot of different ways. I think this changes everything for the world of Thor going forward, which, you know, maybe we say that kind of stuff all the time. This time it's really true. Like, yeah. uh, you know, we, we really tear down everything. Well, at least they have war to look forward to. Right. War of the realm. And there is still a war. Yeah. Oh. 
Great. Cool. Thank you, Jason. I'm sure there'll be more murder, too. So <laughs> You heard it from him. Make you happy. So, Jason promised more murder in the pages of his Thor comics, and we've already seen that. We know now that all the stuff that he was planning for Jane's story, and it has been incredible. And wait, you say you want to hear more from Mr. Jason Aaron, the most wonderful bald bearded man in Marvel Comics? Well, here's some chat with Jason, writer of Avengers. I just think it's cool that you just said writer of Avengers. That's cool to hear that for the first time. Just soaking in. I guess we were talking on a recent episode of the show about you've been at Marvel over 10 years now at this point. I almost take for granted that you haven't written Avengers yet. How does it feel now to be writing the flagship team, the flagship book? Feels super cool. Yeah, um, yeah it does feel like you know everything I've done at Marvel over the course of a, a decade has kind of been building towards this. Feels like the right time for me to be doing this book. You know, and, and you can see how things have directly led into it. The stuff I've been doing in Thor leads into this. The Marvel Legacy one shot from last year very directly leads into Avengers number one. The legacy one-shot with your team of, what is it, one million BC Avengers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Caveman Avengers. Yeah. They're so cool. What was that conversation like? Did you call up Tom and be like, okay, for the (laughs) biggest book that we're going to put out in the year, I want to create a team of Avengers from a million years ago. This is what they're going to look like. How does he react? He was like, that sounds cool. Oh, it made sense. I mean, I'd kind of already was uh, working on my ideas for the Avengers, had the idea for this team of prehistoric Avengers, and once we started talking about legacy, you know, the idea of legacy, it fit perfectly into that, right? I mean, the Marvel Legacy one-shot was a book that was about the past, present, and future of the Marvel Universe, so what better way to start it than with the what could be the very beginning of what we know as the Marvel Universe with these prehistoric heroes who, who come together to face this celestial threat. Now in Avengers number one, we see the that celestial threat come to the present day in a massive way. What is this Avengers squad? Because every you know you can look at Kooky Quartet, the original founding Avengers. Right. So many different teams over the years. Who are you putting on the field? Well, you know, I mean, the first piece of the puzzle, of course, is the the big three are back together, right? For the first time in years, I guess. At this point, we've got. You know, Steve Rogers Cap, Tony Stark Iron Man, and Thor Odin's son back on the table. They've been through a lot the last few years. You know, they're, they, they've had their struggles, their ups and downs, so they, they come back together. Um, and the question is, can they put back the Avengers? Should they put back the Avengers? How do they do that? And then they're very quickly thrust into the midst of this situation, which is, you know, kind of the same sort of situation that gave rise to the Avengers in the first place, that there's a threat that nobody else can deal with except Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Um, so the rest of the team kind of forms around them over the course of you know, the, the, them facing down this, these new celestial enemies. You're not going to tell me the rest of the team? I, really I can. Do you want to yeah, know Yeah, this? I want to hear them. Uh, we get uh, Black Panther and Doctor Strange yeah. who, who come together and in investigating uh, part of this threat. Captain Marvel is involved in it in a huge way. Uh, Jen Walters Hulk is sort of a surprising entrance and the way she gets pulled into it and then the other big surprise is uh, Ghost Rider Robbie Ray is Ghost Rider nice. uh, maybe the first Avenger who drives a car as part of his <laughs> superpower 
Um, he's the young guy who none of these other characters really know. So, you know, you'll kind of have to wait and see how all those characters get pulled into it. As you're writing them, do you have any particular pairings of characters or dynamics that you were surprised by? Uh, yeah, it's fun to explore different combinations. Like I said, we start out with uh, Doctor Strange and Black Panther hanging out. Again, we don't, I don't think we normally see those two palling around. Oh, no, they go to brunch all the time. Oh, fair enough. Uh, I'm sure they got great brunch in Wakanda. Yeah. They, they start out pretty much as a, uh, you know, a team up just between the two of them that expands into this a big Avenger story. Yeah, so big Avenger story, big threat. You mentioned a celestial threat. Are right. these, like, is it Arishem coming down and being like, no. Arishem is definitely a big part of it. He's the guy with the, you know, the big crazy Kirby tattoo yeah. on his thumb. Yeah. Yeah. So we're getting actual celestials and and the huge menace that they pose? Yes. Well, well, I'll say we see all those celestials. We Mm -hmm. see all those classic, you know, Jack Kirby designed celestials. It's not as simple as just those guys showing up to wreak havoc. There's something new. There's a new threat involved. So we also see some celestials we've never seen before. And who's on art for the book? Ed McGinnis. Yeah. Right. So does Ed get to then design new Celestials? Absolutely. Yes, he does. Like, in my my heart just felt better because I know Ed, <laughs> one, he's just the sweetest dude. Right. But two, Celestials are characters kind of built for his art style. Sure. I mean, the, you can see that in your mind, right? Yeah. As soon as I say Ed McGinnis drawing, you know, badass Celestials, you can see that, those pages. Man. And they, they look even better than you're imagining. They look super cool. I bet they do. When you jump onto a book like Avengers, uh, recently we talked about Thor, you know, with years of history, there's a legacy to it. How do you parse that information, like the history of it? How much does that influence what you're putting into the story? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think with anything I've done at Marvel, whether it's Avengers or Thor or what, Ghost Rider, like you're always trying to take all the cool stuff from the past right we got decades worth of of great stories and great characters you want to boil that down to what's what makes these characters still fun and relevant after so long while at the same time doing something new right so i mean i very much feel like that's what i'm trying to do with avengers this definitely you know owes a lot to some of the great avenger stories of the past but i want to do a story we've never seen before and put together a group of characters we've we've never seen this exact iteration of avengers before and going forward, I want this to, to be a book that, you know, gives us a view of what is the landscape of the Marvel Universe, right? Like if you were going to read one Marvel book, not that you should only read one Marvel book, but if you were and you pick this one up, this one will give you an idea of what does the Marvel Universe look like, yeah. you know, globally, universally, everything. I want this book to feel like an event, basically, every arc. It should, right? They're the Avengers. So they only face the biggest, most world-shattering threats. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what we're going for. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jason was doing his best teasy bits, and now we have two issues of Avengers by Jason Aaron and Ed McGinnis. So you know some of those details already. Believe me, there's plenty more to come. Also, up on this episode, we've got Mr. Jerry Duggan here to talk about Infinity Countdown. Jerry's been a multiple guest on this new iteration of This Week in Marvel. He is a superstar. Uh, he and I talk about Infinity Countdown. And if you were wondering if I'd work a Gremlins 2 reference into any of this, keep listening. You'll get your answer. 
Jerry Duggan, writer of Infinity Countdown. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. How are you? Very good. Uh, all right. Infinity Countdown, probably the biggest story in fiction. Right. Is that is that true? That's what I've been. That's what I've been hearing. It's a really big story. We shuttered uh, Guardians for it, and uh, it just became too big. The toys I was asking to play with were um, not mine, but Marvel hooked me up, and uh, Infinity Countdown will reveal where the Infinity Stones are, who has them, who wants them, and uh, who are they punching to get them. So uh, it's uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. The stones are a little bit different than we've seen before for reasons that are unclear. And some of our characters uh, may be beginning to worry that they are in a um, simulation. Mm. And that's, uh, that's right up my alley. We may be living in a simulation, too. The, you talked about the scope and uh, how this started in Guardians but really became bigger than your Guardians book. Who are some of the key players in Infinity Countdown? Well, the Guardians are there for sure. They have skin in the game, but uh, we have um, Ultron will be uh, very interested. We've had an Ultron problem brewing out in space for a long time. We have Adam Warlock, who has returned now, uh, like uh, our cosmic Gandalf uh, at our time of great need. We have um, several versions of Kang uh, maybe interested in this. And I hesitate to mention some of the other toys that I demanded uh, or would quit over if I didn't get, because I really don't want to spoil the surprises. But it will also be a down-to-earth Marvel story, I think, in in a in an interesting way, using the stones in a new way and where the rocks fall. Where and you know, because look, they're kind of dumb rocks too. Uh, so we are telling stories about the people holding them and what happens to them as a result of that. And uh, I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. You talked about several versions of Kang. Is this a Gremlins 2 situation <laughs> where there will be a female Kang and then there will be a lightning Kang? That was my elevator pitch uh, mm. for the for the retreat room. I said, guys, you remember Gremlins 2? We're going to have to... You know, but there is something really cool about telling... Um, a story uh, with time travelers. Uh, the, our, in February, uh, our Adam Warlock uh, special comes out, and uh, Kang uh, has a big part to play in that, and he will have a, a part moving forward, too, to, um, uh, to play. And some of the things that you see may not make a whole lot of sense until you see later um, what caused them. <laughs> As is the way with Kang's. Three steps ahead and two steps behind at the same time. And you got a dumb guy writing it. So like <laughs> I'm like, oh, I better have a time traveler make that sense of that. Yeah. Uh, who's doing the art for? Infinity Countdown number one has uh, Aaron Cooter. And uh, he is just doing the work of uh, his career. One of our new young guns. He um, is will be joined by um, Mike Hawthorne in Infinity Countdown. Uh, I've dragged Mike off of Deadpool to go into space with me. The All Reds are doing the the Warlock special. And, of course, uh, Diodato is... The, the great Diodato is drawing all of uh, Prime. And so I, I couldn't be happier. You know, it, it's so fun to collaborate with these guys uh, and then rewrite uh, when they're done trying to raise my game. It, it'll be interesting. They they all have a lot of authorship over these over these books. I'm excited to see what people think. With the Guardian's book feeding into Infinity Countdown, 
what do we see for the Guardians? Obviously, the, the characters were left in really interesting places at the end of your Guardian series. What's in store for them in Infinity Countdown? Well, Drax was sax curious at the end of Guardians. He um, was listening to uh, some of Quill's tapes and gravitating towards uh, Springsteen. So he's a fan of Clarence Clemens. I went into the series telling everyone I had made uh, Drax a pacifist with Aaron. And when I, Aaron was a little nervous because Aaron's like, are we really doing that? And I was like, not kind of a little bit, but here's what I thought. And then Aaron laughed uh, and I knew I was on the right track. He just was struggling with it the way that like a guy might struggle not to drink, but he was still drinking. Like he would beat a guy up to death and, you know, he felt bad about it. There is going to be a shift for Drax. There's some big stuff coming for there from uh, that, that story. Our Groot story will culminate. Uh, Groot had been chopped to pieces by the gardener, and uh, his tiny brown sticky body parts were planted in a, a planet that had been hit by the annihilation wave. And so he grew a, a, a carnivorous flora colossi army uh, to sort of re-green the cosmos uh, that story will come to a head and Groot will change, I think, in a, in a really cool way. Gamora has really um, been struggling. She's convinced that her, a, a piece of her soul has been stuck in the soul gem and has been there for a long time since Adam Warlock brought her in. And she's actually communicating with this uh, ghost self. And that really is um, going to be one of the central problems for the Guardians moving forward. Before we wrap up, what does Infinity Countdown mean for the future of the Marvel Universe? Well, a countdown does imply we're getting to, uh, you know, a a big bang. And uh, Infinity Countdown, by the end of it, will have teed up our next big story. You know, this feels like an event, uh, but I'm just, uh, with my collaborators, moving the pieces into place to actually tell a much larger story. So, um, you know, you're going to see a lot of old cosmic favorites uh, interacting with some characters who are are down to earth and the stage will be set for uh, Infinity's End. If you had to pick one character who has amazing big moments in this uh, that we haven't talked about, we talked about Adam Warlock, Kang, a little bit of Groot, what character should fans look out for? Read up on your Turk. Turk as in the Daredevil The Daredevil, yeah, Daredevil supporting character. That's how down to earth we're, we're going we're gonna to go. Cool. You have a favorite Turk story that you, were, you looked at doing this? Some Frank Miller stuff? I or? went back and looked at all the uh, Miller stuff. Uh, you know, you vacillated between, you know, a punching bag and a punchline sometimes. But there's a real um, story to tell there for him and uh, I think what we're going to do with him is one of the more interesting pieces. Uh, Joe uh, Quesada was really, that was the I think when he really got on board with w- what we were doing as I was uh, walking him through the story um, and it will be easy I think for um, fans to sort of go ah, I get it, this is how this would happen when, when uh, you come into contact with a little bit of the cosmos like that so yeah, it's uh, not a joke. The Turk, uh, you know, has a has a role to play, and I think a, a really interesting one. Thank you, Jay. Thank you.
I'll be honest, I still want Jerry to take my idea of Gremlins 2-ing Kang and giving us a female Kang, a lightning Kang, you know, a very smart talk show Kang, all of that. I want all of that and more. We'll see as Infinity Countdown rolls on. Who's next? Oh, it's my friend and yours, delicious Donnie Cates, ready to talk some Venom. Get ready for Donnie's hype and excitement. It is infectious. It is great. Donnie Cates. Hey, hey, hey. How's it going? Dude, it's so good. Yeah? So good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are 100% all in on Venom, and I love it. You are wearing the shirt. Mm -hmm. You got a jacket. Tell us the story about this jacket. Yeah, so in uh, in in Lethal Protector, um, Eddie's in Eddie Brock. That's Venom. Eddie makes street clothes for himself, and he looks super cool. Um, and this is the exact jacket, more or less, that he makes for himself, including the patch that he has on the arm and everything. So I'm a I'm a I'm a Venom nut. There's actually you'll probably see them eventually. Uh, growing up, I was a sculptor, right? And I made so many Venom sculptures. And I actually got a scholarship to college based on some Venom sculptures that I did. And, and that's really turned that into writing comics. Actually, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. That, I, I got a scholarship to SCAD where I, I went to go and be a penciler. But then when I was there, I was in classes with like Trad Moore and Jeff Shaw, who does my Thanos run. And I was like, I'm never going to be good enough to do this. Those guys are phenomenal. So I switched over to being a writer. Yeah. And now I'm here. Ruining so, everyone's books. No, you're doing. You're, <laughs> as uh, our this week of Marvel listeners know, you are been you have been on a hit streak. Murderers well, Row of our fans loving the books and and us picking your books consistently as books of the week to the point where one of my co-hosts, Mr. Tucker Marcus, has developed quite the crush on you and your work. I called him. I heard. I, I was listening to the podcast and he said Donny Cates call me and so I do as I'm told and I called him and he did not answer. Yeah. Which, uh, so that's over. We're done. <laughs> Sorry, Tuck. Sorry, Tuck. Yeah. So the Lethal Protector arc, was, that was art by Ron Lim? No, that no, was, was Bagley. Mark Bagley. Bagley, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, Mark Bagley. Does does Mark, have you met Mark? No. Uh. <laughs> I feel like he would make fun of me. Yeah, I get, I get made fun of quite a bit for my devotion to Venom um, by the other writers. Um, uh, is, you know, because um, for God forbid I'd be a fan of things that I write, right? You know what? But that it's okay. I think you are putting all that passion into the books, and it's been showing off with Thanos and and Doctor Strange and everything you're doing. The love for the characters and the Marvel universe has shown through. What about Venom sparked this love? Man, I don't know. When I was a kid, I I my dad taught me how to read on comics. And uh, at first, it was Spider-Man. Uh, I actually learned how to read uh, with uh, Spider-Man comics. And then I was madly in love with Peter and, and loved that whole world. And then there was this crazy, scary, big, bad version of Spider-Man. And I just loved him. And I remember picking up Lethal Protector. And that's kind of where his turn kind of came in, where he was... Um, what I loved about him was this was this idea that he... He hates Spider-Man. He wants to kill Peter. At the same time, he'll stop a fight to go and help people. Like, he, he's not a bad guy. He just hates Spider-Man. Like, I hate people, right? I'm not a bad person, you know? Like Jason Aaron, right? Like, we all hate Jason. We shouldn't do this. <laughs> no, no. Just keep it rolling. This is fine. We're, going, we're, deep, we're deep into it. Let's, let, let's sub in Chip Sadarsky. That's more relatable to hate. Everyone loves Jason. And um, we should mention I'm, I'm writing Venom. 
Well, I was that was going to be my next question. I right. wanted to know. I'm not just here talking about Venom as no, a fan. No, this is all about your Venom fandom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. It, so the 30th anniversary of the character, which is crazy because I'm I'm 33. Right, and so when I was three years old, that's when I found this guy. Like I was there on the day that 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 he was born, and I've been following him ever since. And it's crazy to me. I'll, I'll be writing these scripts, and you know, I'm just kind of in the zone, and then I'll kind of wake up and be like, "Wow, I'm I my hand is on this wheel. This is this is insane." For you know, obviously, Venom and Eddie, yeah, uh, the symbiote, and Eddie, the human host have gone through a ton of stuff, mm-hmm. particularly over the last couple of years. Yeah. A lot of really cool uh, adventures and stories. Where do you pick up with your Venom run? So um, when Venom number one comes out, uh, some time has passed, and uh, things are not going super great. Something is happening to the symbiote. You know, In the past, um, Eddie and the symbiote have developed a very kindred friendship almost. Um, they're, they're very loving in the past, right? Something that was kind of skipped over in the story of Eddie, Eddie never really had that moment of being terrified of this crazy alien, right? Peter certainly had it, and we've seen it happen to Flash, and we've seen it happen to, you know, the other people, right? But Eddie kind of accepted it, and that was something that I wanted to really explore. And so something's happening to the symbiote that terrifies him. It's starting to speak in this other language um, that Eddie can't understand. And it's driving him insane. The symbiote is starting to be very cruel. And it's starting to kind of operate without Eddie's consent. Um, there's things that we're going to start exploring that have never really been touched upon ever in the 30 years this character has been around. Um, you know, in the past, we've touched upon the symbiote planet, right? But let's go a little bit further back. Where do they come from? What is like the origin of the of the species, right? So we're going to get into a lot of that. What makes the symbiotes tick? What specifically is doing this to this symbiote in, in my run is going to be a big thing. But more importantly, there's an unexplored area in the Venom story which is Eddie himself. You know, Eddie's been around for 30 years, and we don't know that much about him. You know, when you look at Peter, every action that Peter does is drawn back to one moment in his life, the death of his Uncle Ben, right? And so everything that he does is is, is in service to that one moment where he be, became who he was. Eddie is always on about protecting the innocent. Where did that come from? What is Eddie Brock's Uncle Ben moment? And that's something that we're going to dive into, and we're really going to get to know Eddie and, uh, and find out what makes him tick and what makes him the kind of ultimate codependent nightmare that he is these days, right? Um, along the way, we're going we're gonna to reveal a lot of uh, really insane um, horror, fantasy, cosmic, really far out stuff. I don't, I don't want to say too much. Uh, first arc is called Rex. And uh, I'll say this, it opens, the opening scene uh, takes place during the story of Beowulf. So you, you talked about some of the elements in it, yeah. especially the horror. The thing that, as we're talking, the tone that I feel mm-hmm. is that there's some horror vibe yeah. to this book. Uh, what were the influences outside of the Venom stuff that you loved as a kid and growing up and through the years, 
What were some of the influences for this run? For this run, um, you know, I, you know, Eddie's had a lot of, well, not Eddie specifically, but this Venom as a character has kind of gone through every genre that's been out there. I mean, he's been cosmic, he's been, you know, a hero, he's been on the Guardians, he's been um, an uh, Avenger, right? Um, this arc is pretty Lovecraftian, <laughs> at least the first arc is. It's horrific. Uh, our editor, Nick Lowe, there's some things in the first script that he called me and was like, dude, oh, oh my God, what, what, why are you doing this? As I like put ref in there and I was like, Google this if you want, but this is awful. Um, yeah, the, the symbiote is not something that should be taken lightly. I mean, it's a crazy alien like monster, right? And it's kind of been treated as like a, a symbiote thing, you know? But like it's weird. It's really weird. It like it lives inside of your brain and like goes through all your veins and stuff. That's awful. And what kind of dude is Eddie that he's just super cool with that, you know? I'm I like as you talk about it, I'm like, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. So I guess I'm more Eddie Brock. Man, I want, I want, so there, there's something that's very important about Peter Parker that uh, I think the best stories about Peter are the stories where you don't want to be Peter, right? Because then you feel his relief when he puts on that mask and what he gets to escape him being Peter, right? Like, you know, if you take away Iron Man's, you know, armor, you take away all, like, you know, uh, all these gadgets and stuff, he's still a billionaire, kind of an awesome dude, right? But Peter, like, his life's terrible. Like, you shouldn't want to be Peter. That's why Peter wants to be Spider-Man. And in that, I think that it goes a long way with Eddie. If Eddie is terrified of this symbiote, but it's all that he has. It's literally the only thing that he has. He doesn't have any family. Everyone on earth hates him. You know, he's unemployable. Like, everything has been taken away from him. And interesting thing about Eddie is that, like, his life is horrible, and his escape from it is more horrible, right? And so you really want to dive into the, to the horror of it all. There's no relief for Eddie, because when Eddie tries to not be Eddie anymore, he's something entirely worse. Who are your collaborators on the book? You talk about Nick Lowe as an editor. Man. Who are the artists that you're working with? Ryan Stegman. Oh, boy. Ryan Stegman came on board, and uh, and he's going to... He's Man. A lot of the people that I work with on my books um, are out of the country, or for whatever reason, we don't get, get to talk that much. And the best part of making comics is getting on the phone and, and getting in the room and, and doing it. And Ryan is a chatterbox and loves this character a lot. And so me and him get on the phone and, and, and break stuff down. And he draws a mean Venom, man. And his Eddie is phenomenal because we're, we're doing a long-haired version of him, which is, well... My favorite version of him is mullet, mullet. is mullet, I, but we're yeah, right there. We're yeah. Right there. but you know, it's not exactly, you know, it doesn't really work anymore. Although we go to great, we go to great lengths to like make him in the rain so we can kind of slick it back to like mimic a little bit of the, you know, but it's, it's phenomenal, man. Um, Ryan is, uh, is, is an ideal, uh, partner in this. He's, he's, he's awesome. As I hope you know now, Venom is dope. So much cool stuff to come from Donnie, Ryan Stegman, and the whole team. You know what else is dope, though? Margaret Stoll. Margie is rad, and there's some really neat stuff coming from her, Carlos Pacheco, and the team on Life of Captain Marvel, which comes out in July. So this is good preview stuff for you. Let's hear a bit from Margie. 
Hey, Margie, how's it going? I just wanted to say, AKA Margaret Stoll. Yeah. So, but we just got through in the room hearing about the story of the life of Captain Marvel. I know, and there was a lot of love in the room. Yeah, I was, was yeah. I was feeling it from my band of brothers from another mother. <laughs> and sisters. I and mean, sisters. Sana was championing it. Um, Kelly Thompson, it's so great to have her in the room. Oh my gosh, we're so, yeah. I'm, I'm a fan. As am I. That's cool. Um, but, so this was the first I've really heard about the story. Uh, as we're getting now into what the book is about, it's a lot of family content. Yeah. This summer we're doing the uh, Life of Captain Marvel, and it's five issue, sort of like a deeper dive on her origin story. And it is really a family story, and it's as much about the human side of her as her Kree powers. Yeah. It's been kind of like, I want to say a special experience, but there's no way to say that without sounding really geeky, <laughs> so I just won't. We're but I'll leave it hanging out there. Yeah, it, it, it is a special experience because, I mean, I would imagine... Carol's been such a, an important part of your career here at Marvel, and yeah. you are now so much an important part of who Carol is for Marvel, for Marvel fans, and our comics. It is a special thing. Well, Carol's really strong, and we always knew that her force of personality came from adversity and being like the only girl in the boys' room, which is always something I can relate to. But I, I mean, I come out of video games yeah. and comics. But I really feel like I finally understand her family dynamic and I understand this sort of really positive source of her strength instead of it being always in um, reaction or in defense to something. And that's been a great breakthrough for me with the character. That's super exciting to hear about. I'm yeah. also, before we get any further, I also want to talk about the artist on the book. Carlos Pacheco. Carlos Pacheco is a god. It is insane. Just the the faces. I mean, he, he does the epic battles but the faces are just so emotional it's crazy yeah the thing i've always loved about carlos it, the faces for sure but there's a way he draws a person a body there's a i don't want to say roundness necessarily because yeah. that that sort of deflates it a little bit is also just the organicness of the his humanity his, yeah the humanity of his figures yeah and the way he tells a story is just so so well, wonderful. I've been working really closely with Joe on this, and he's really... Joe um, Quesada. Joe Quesada, our CCO, and he's really, I mean, as an artist also, he has that, like, he really was careful about how he wanted this story to evolve visually as well as uh, the story, the narrative of it. And it's been, um, it really has been kind of a team experience with Sanaa Manet and Joe and... Steve Wacker from TV was in on it, and we just really sort of dug in together on it. It was great. Yeah, with um, you, you've had years of experience now writing Carol, telling her that's, story. That's so many years. <laughs> I'm a young at heart. Oh yes, but uh, so so many years <laughs> in in Marvel lore. Yeah, and we, you've, Carol's had a lot of years. She's had many years, but you know she doesn't show it either. No, she's great. We and share that. We share that. One hundred percent. How do you approach this story in a different way? What, what do you look at for this? Because this is in many ways a definitive telling of some things that we want to say, no, this is who Carol is going forward. Yeah, part of it is how you handle it. Part of it is how Marvel handles it. We're taking a pause. My fans have been panicking because Carol went dark for you know a month or two before. And we did also go to a specific artist for this telling so that these stories hang together as mm -hmm the definitive, the group of origin, you know, comics. But also in the first issue, she sort of stops in a combat sequence and 
Tony, who knows plenty about family d damage and backstory, says, like, you're not okay. You have to get okay, and basically sends her off. And so she does begin this sort of voyage of self-discovery that really does start with not business as usual. You are not, you know, you can't be your heroic self until you're right and, you know, you get straight on your head. Well, self-care is an important thing, yeah. you know, that a lot of people don't think about all the time. And it's not something we always address with our superheroes. No, heroes really don't. I mean, we suck it up. And I relate to that, too. You know, sometimes you feel like you'd walk around with a six-foot piece of rebar sticking out of your gut if you had to. Carol definitely would. She's been taking one for the team for a long time. So she's terrible at all of this. But we get to see a lot about her childhood. We get to see a lot of it taking place in a childhood summer home in Maine and sort of a different setting for her. Joe always talks about it at like the beginning of, uh, what was it, Ultimate Spider-Man, where mm -hmm. it's just like a refocus on Peter Parker. It is yeah. kind of like a deep dive into who this character is before they put on the suit. Yeah, I mean, in Ultimate Spider-Man, as Joe was mentioning, five issues where he doesn't put on the suit because we need to understand who Peter Parker is, because once you understand Peter Parker, you understand Spider-Man more. Yeah, so that's sort of the idea. Although, um, you know, spoilers, we do put on the suit. But <laughs> but that's that's actually what we're trying to do is reframe the context of the suit. Mm -hmm. And that's been a great challenge. And honestly, I've been drawing a lot on my background as a novelist um, and like a character background. And it's set in a small town, which reminds me weirdly of Beautiful Creatures, which was my first book in that movie. And I feel like... This has been a really weird convergence of all my backgrounds into this sort of five arc story for Carol. It's sort of a great moment to really let this character fly. And fly she will. Yeah. I, I do, I love that you come from video game background. You know, you and I have talked about video games a ton. Uh, what are your favorite all-time video games? Well, my whole family, you know, we're super nerds and we play a lot of games together and did go to the last five Pokemon World Championships for the trading card game. Actually not last year, the years before. So I have I have a lot of allegiances, but um, I work pretty closely with Bungie right now in one of my day jobs. And uh, so I, I would have to say right now, I, I am uh, a fan of Destiny. Yeah, super fun. I love the, the world building that is being done there. Yeah. Um, for Carol Core fans, for your fans, what can they expect for Carol to come out of this with? Like, where where do they where can we see her? Obviously, not spoiling anything because we want them to enjoy the ride. But you know, this isn't a, a journey. Yeah, you're going to see uh, more, much more about Carol's past, more about the Cree, more about Carol's future because she really does have to iron all of this out and you will see a slightly different Carol coming out of this for a lot of different reasons and things that she's going to go through because we like nothing better than to abuse our characters. So I think you're going to see a stronger Carol. You're definitely going to see someone who knows themselves more and then can deliver in a certain mm -hmm. way more and a, a better hero. We always want a better hero. Before we wrap up, when you're writing, say, the life of Captain Marvel versus the other Captain Marvel series you've done versus your novels versus your your work in video games, has the process been for this particular story? How has it changed for you in the way you think about it and the way your process is? Well, some things are the same. So all stories, all good stories are true. And all stories have a kind of emotional truth. And I really have a conscious feeling of putting my huge headphones on and digging deep into what 
What is the true story here I'm trying to tell? Mm. When you get it right, the truth of a character in a game, in a novel, the pilot, anything uh, comic, you feel it start to resonate. It's kind of like ringing a bell. And even if you stop ringing it, the bell is still like vibrating. It's hard to explain, but a character starts to vibrate and they keep feeling things and doing things that are naturally connected to sort of that truth. Even if you walk away, they're still sort of controlling it. So um, after a while, if you've gotten enough of the characters right, a story will tell itself and you'll know what's supposed to happen because they know what, what would happen in any of those situations. And readers start to know that. So if you fall down on that job, the reader knows how that character would react. And if you get it wrong, they boy, they will tell you within five <laughs> minutes. So I love that. I love this sort of culture of expertise that Marvel readers, that Marvel fans bring to um, the fandom. And they're, they're the ones who make us keep the high bar. Yeah, I mean, we have a Carol core for a reason. Yeah. We love Carol, they're we love your work. We're excited. Life of Captain Marvel coming this July. Like these other chats, we recorded this while Margie was here for the Marvel Comics editorial retreat, but hers was actually recorded shortly after she broke down the story in the room to all the editorial staff, all the other writers, and then plans for the series, giving everyone a full look at what's going on. And everybody was excited. It was really, it was, it was just, it was just terrific. Finally, last but certainly not least, is Mighty Mark Wade, writer of some of my favorite stories, both from Marvel and beyond, and a dude who's damn near seen and written all you can do in comics. But we dig into two of his upcoming projects in this chat. Mark Wade! How are you, sir? Good, good. Oh, man. We have two big books to talk about we do. right now. First up is Ant-Man and the Wasp. Mark, what is Ant-Man and the Wasp all about? All right, so Ant-Man and the Wasp is, you've got Scott Lang, who we're picking up from Guardians of the Galaxy. He's out in the cosmos. He's trying to find his way back home. Wasp, Nadia Pym, is his lifeline, but she hates him. That's the problem. You stole my dad's technology. Well, no, he gave it to me. No, you stole my dad's heritage, everything. So she says, all right, you got to get back home. I can set it up. I got this big microwave receiver here. I can get you, but you got to take it to the split second. You can't be late. You can't be late jumping in the beam because if you're late jumping in the beam, you could end up anywhere in the microverse. You cannot be late. Scott is late. <laughs> so Wasp then has to go deep dive in the microverse and find Scott Lang, and then it is the journey home. But what we get to do with it's cool is that we get to redefine what the Marvel microverse, what the subatomica area of Marvel looks like and get a, a real sort of 21st century look to it. I'm a, I finally get to put my physics major to, to use. So I've been doing deep dives. Yes, that was my major. Yes. So writer and scientist. Look at that. Double we, threat. I, I mean, I've known you. We've chatted several times over the years. I, I've Somehow the physics major never clicked. There you go. I love using science and stories. There's just so much material to be mined there. And when we're talking about quantum foam and talking about how the universe, the subatomic, does not look like we thought it did in school. It is not billiard balls being orbited by smaller billiard balls. It's not what an atom looks like. So it, we get to really take a look at what it looks like in, in the Marvel Universe. Is it true that every atom of one person's own body looks exactly like that person, but very small? It is now. Sure. That's issue but, three. There you go. Thank that, you, ladies and gentlemen. That is my uh, forever contribution to the Marvel Universe. Nice. Perfect. I, I'm very excited because I love Nadia Pym. I think Thank you. what you and Jeremy have, have done with her yeah. and the science aspect yeah. of her character 
fits so well to the story that you're talking about. Yeah. I imagine also you're going to have a lot of fun playing with her experiencing all this for the oh, first absolutely. time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is this is heaven to her because, again, she's played around in the microverse some, but this is her backyard. This is her place. And to be able to have to explain it to Scott, who is a troglodyte, to her. But he's he stands in for the readership. He's basically, you know, she will explain it to him, and then you as the readers will understand. So With all this, do we see some of the classic microverse characters, villains, locations, or is it really like building it all from the bottom up. Tabula rasa with uh, this book. I love the Psycho Man as much as anybody. But every time you do a, a microverse story, Psycho Man shows up. So maybe it's time to find something else other than the microverse. But laws of physics are different on that level. And every step down you take in terms of subatomica, and I'm not just making this up, this was how it would be. In the entire physical structure, the entire physics structure, the entire Newtonian physics goes completely out the window, and every level of subatomica has a completely different look, and the laws of nature just behave differently. I'm super jazzed about this. Who's the artist on the book? Javier Garon. Javier Garon is so good. Yes, he is. detail that's going to be, that's that's sort of the exciting thing. When I talk to uh, everybody who's here at the retreat, well, the writers working on the books, when you guys start thinking about the artist that you are, you're working with yeah. and the capabilities. I was so stoked to get him. I really was. He, and he's into it. He's really into it. And the designs he has and the sense of style he has and the sense of comedy he has is so perfect for this book. It's going to be great. On the sort of the other side of the coin, right. though, you are doing a Doctor Strange Doctor book Strange, as well. exactly. Yes, so I am. Do you think of the magic as, you know, super science almost? Or do you... Pers- what is your thought about magic in the Marvel Universe. Okay. I think of magic as magic, not science. But what we're doing with Doctor Strange is he wakes up one day and it's not as magic anymore. It's not he can't he used to be able to see things beyond our realm and now he's blind to that. He wakes up the next day and he's looking at scrolls and he can't see anything. They're invisible to him. He uses wands and they're like sticks. Next day he's walking around the mansion. He gets lost in his own sanctum for two days because it's just this mystical realm, but he's not magic anymore. So now he's something's gone wrong. He either spent too much energy or he did something because magic has a price to pay when you use it. He must have done something that exhausted him, but he doesn't know quite what. He's trying to live a normal life, but that's not working either. So he goes to Tony Stark. He says, you're really good at digging your way out of the bottom of a bottle. What do I do? (laughs) And Tony says, well, you know, you're talking about the earth. You're talking about here. A lot of magic up there. You've never been out in the universe. What does a Skrull super magician look like? What does a Kree super magician look like? What does a magician look like on, in, on the Impossible Man's planet? Go there. And so that's a six-issue journey through the stars as St- Stephen Strange goes and looks for magic on other planets and finds it. And in doing so, hooks up with a sort of female Han Solo-ish magician who is all super science. She's still doing magic. But it's the science equivalent. Like, what is the chemical composition of eye of newt? What is the chemical composition of, you know, skin of toad? And what happens when you use those scientific equivalents to create magic spells? What do those look like? Are they some weird conflation of mystical stuff and weird science? So the two of them cruise the galaxy. I am super jazzed about this on a number of levels. You mentioned... What is the essentially the Sorcerer Supreme of the Popums? The yep. Impossible Man. Yep. That is a hugely fertile story yep. ground. Yes, All it of is. This is, but yeah. like the Impossible Man, 
wonderful character. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so I can't wait to see. It. Even I don't quite know yet what he is, what his sorcerer is like. But I'm, I'm in. Who's yeah. the artist on Doctor Strange? Jesus Saiz. Oh my gosh, um, it's so good. It's so beautifully <laughs> colored. It's just so, and he renders this stuff almost like a painting. The work that Jesus Saiz is doing is just mind blowing. It's one of the best art jobs I've ever. So it's certainly tailor made for Doctor Strange. A beautiful finished, almost painted look to it. It's going to be incredible. So you have the background in physics that is informing a lot of uh, much of what you're thinking about for yeah. Ant-Man and the Wasp. Do you have any sort of background? Have you studied what you can be studied for magic to think about? How do you prepare for Doctor Strange? Is it just the comics, the the, the years and years <laughs> it's, it's of a, wonderful it's the years, stories? Exactly. I open my mouth and a feather comes out. I got nothing. <laughs> um, yes, I mean, I'm doing my deep dive in, in Marvel magic, but also like poking around in ancient tomes and stuff, whatever you can find on Google, actually. But still, you're looking at old magic. You're trying to find ways of visualizing. That's the trick. The trick really is finding ways of taking all these magic words and magic spells of old and giving them a visual, giving them a really strong visual because that's what we do in comics. It's not just a matter of throwing out words like hoary hosts of Hoggoth. Let's have a really cool visual to go with that. And again, Jesus Saiz is stepping up to the plate. With Steven going out into the cosmos, exploring this, are you looking at new alien races at all? Alien races that we've seen? How much do we get to see if, you know, because I'll be fair, I'm a big fan of yours for a long time, and I like when you get to start creating and building and all it. this cool stuff. Yeah, that's just it. We're right off the bat. We're going to be doing a mix of old and new. We want to go to the Skrull planet, but we also, for every one of those we do, we want to go to a completely different place. That's fun. For, you know, Scott Lang or for Doctor Strange, you have particular favorite stories, you know, from from history. With Doctor Strange, I really went deep diving back into the Steve Ditko stuff and the original stuff because I my approach tends to be go to ground, go back to the place where it was originated. Author intent means a lot to me, and I want to go back and see what the original seeds were. And the same with Scott Lang. I mean, not only go, I know Hank Pym's story back and forth because he's one of my favorite Marvel characters, but Scott Lang, I was also at the ground floor of when I was a kid reading those Marvel premiere issues, and therefore. I was digging on on Scott Lang too, and and getting a sense of who he is, and also going back to Nick Spencer's run recently. He did a really good job with uh, with Scott Lang. So yeah, I'm excited. Thank you, Mark. My pleasure. All right. Uh, remember, a scientist. Mark is a scientist with a degree in sciencing. He has confirmed that every atom in your body looks exactly how you look. That is science. It's true. Mark and I also talked about the artist on Ant-Man and the Wasp, Javier Garon. Stay tuned for an upcoming episode with a longer interview that I did with Javier. He is a sweetheart and, oh my gosh, so talented. Super jazz for both of the books that Mark's writing, along with all the projects that the folks talked about this episode. Hope you are as well. Stay tuned to future episodes of both This Week in Marvel, as well as Marvel's The Pullist, for more on, on these, all the other books, and just so much to come. We do comic... We- Guys, I don't know if you know this. We put out like 20 comics a week. It's pretty great. All right. I'll see you on the next episode of either Marvel's The Pullist or This Week in Marvel. I'm Ryan. This is Marvel, your universe. <laughs>